Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we carry on conversations about theology, culture, uh, for the life of the church. And today we have a special episode. Uh, I'm joined by Alistair Roberts, as usual. Andrew's back in town, uh, or really just back on the phone with us. And, and Matt Anderson could not be with us because he is receiving a refrigerator, because apparently he likes food cold. But we have a very special guest, another Anderson, not related, uh, Anna Anderson. Uh, she is a wonderful writer and blogger and accomplished person in many ways. <laughs> Friend of ours, she has just authored a book called Made for More, and we are big fans. I'm a big fan of it. I, I read it, loved it. Uh, said some things about it, but we are really excited to have her on the podcast today to to begin to chat with us about it. Um, so, Hannah, welcome uh, to the show. It's good to be with you. Hello. Uh, wanted to just ask you. Our, a lot of our audience maybe doesn't know uh, what Made for More is about, but uh, if you just want to give us a little bit of an uh, intro, it's 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 about the image of God, right? But but. A little bit more about that. Why don't you go ahead and right. fill us in on it? Right. Um, on the, the title is Made for More, um, An Invitation to Live in God's Image. And it's written in context of the conservative evangelical church um, toward women. And the heart of the book is trying to recover an understanding of ourselves that maybe goes beyond our womanhood. And that's kind of a tricky question to address and I'm not in the book I'm not trying to diminish any of the uniqueness or the things that make us specifically male and female but I think the conversation in the church has been directed toward this tension between male and female for the last several decades and what I was trying to recover is maybe a foundation for both male and female being made in God's image and what does that mean and specifically what does it mean for us to recover a sense of our personhood what does it mean to recover a sense of our humanity before we enter into the conversations about gender or gender roles so that's the heart of the book, and it, it is, I'm trying to, to maybe fill a gap or lay a foundation for the conversation that can actually help us within the gender conversation a little bit better. Excellent. Now, I, I loved it. I, I just want to ask, what, what kind of, uh, I mean, you kind of lead the broader the broader foundation of why, uh, what you're trying to address, but why, why did you write the book? Why did you want to, to address this question? Well, in a lot of ways, I have to say it was very personal. Um, I came into adulthood in the midst of these conversations about what women are supposed to be or do and what men are supposed to be and do. And in my 20s, it made a whole lot of sense. And I had all these perfectly crafted paradigms and I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. And so I was married young, had children in my 20s. And as I went through that process, I found that I still had these questions coming up and I still had these things that didn't quite fit right and I couldn't figure out why um, and especially in context of women's discipleship and the things that are presented to women in the church and as I was wrestling through that I just went back to the scripture and started saying what what is missing from the conversation and I realized that in a lot of our conversation we're skipping the entire first chapter 
of Genesis that lays this concept of Imago Dei, and we're going to Genesis 2. And so for very practical reasons, I felt like I needed for myself this foundation to say, how do I live as a wife and a mother and a woman and as a person in light of the calling to reflect and represent God on this earth? Now, uh, I'll let the guys chime in in a minute here, but I wanted to continue to pursue um, when you say Imago Dei, that, that is like the central concept of the book, and it's it's about um, being created in the image of God, uh, and, and then salvation be, as being the recovered and restored image in union with Christ. And I, I just have to say, this was, it was such a solid piece of, of just theological reflection. I didn't know what I was going to get when I when I got the book and the, when I got the, the manuscript, and I remember reading it and just thinking, this is just excellent theological reflection. Um, on these issues, but if you had to nail down for maybe a listener hasn't picked up the book yet, when you say image of God, what's the kind of the core? It's kind of the core insight about Genesis one that you said that we had to recover that was really kind of a, a paradigm changer or, or really kind of the, the central thing that we we need to recover that, would, that you think is kind of foundational for the rest of the conversation in your book uh, that that is missing in a sense, right? I- I think it's very much linked to the question of what it means to be united in Christ. And so what I saw happening in the broader conversation is we were having two conversations. We were talking about finding identity in Christ at the same time that people were talking about finding identity as a Christian woman or finding identity as a Christian man. And so I thought, wait a minute, these pieces have to work together somehow. I believe the scripture teaches, you know, me how to be a a woman, a godly woman, but I also believe that it can't be disconnected from what I understand about my identity in Christ. And so when I stepped away and you start at the right place, and, and what that means is you start with an understanding that you were created, your foundational core identity is to be an image bearer. You are destined to reflect and represent God's nature, to represent him on this earth. We are fallen through sin. We are restored through the perfect deity, the perfect humanity of Christ. And that propels us back to our ability to reflect and represent God. And once that was in place, that that arching theme of what it means to represent God on this earth, to represent God even in my, you know, in my womanhood. It put a lot of the conversations together in one place for me. And so to to say that we have to have this as our foundation really is to say you have to know what you were created for from the front end to know what Christ is redeeming you to be on the back end. That that That's smashing. And I'm going to make the guys wait one more time. Um, when you say, uh, because that was an excellent summary of, of the movement of salvation, um, when you say getting that in place kind of started to pull other things together for you, kind of put the pieces together, what's maybe one piece that wasn't fitting with another piece, so to speak, that this kind of just drew together for you in, in your understanding about about these issues? Well, this is like, a really practical almost silly example but but i do think this concept is essentially practical um for men and women and so for me 
I love my home. I love my family. I find my time is spent as a stay-at-home mom, caring for them, caring for the home. But a lot of the messages I was receiving for why I would do that was based in, well, this is what Christian women do. <laughs> this You're supposed to be a keeper at the home. We're following scripture. And it almost became legalistic. But when I could step away and say, no, you are exercising care and dominion over your home the same way that God himself exercises care and dominion over his sphere. You you are sustaining and maintaining the same way God sustains and maintains. Suddenly all of my very mundane tasks which to that point had been informed by you just need to do this because this is what Christian women do suddenly have this foundation of when you clean your house you, you are representing and reflecting God in the midst of this this is an expression of his nature through you you know you are redeemed in Christ and enabled to do these good works because of your core identity as an image bearer, which is linked to God, not your core identity as a housewife. And I know that may sound a little trivial, but for a lot of women who are in those places of very mundane work, they don't need to be told that their work is so important because that's what they need to do. It's a question of this is God's nature in you. You are reflecting and representing him through even this mundane work. See, and that's the kind of thing when I, I looked at that, that, that is not trivial at all uh, because I, and I, I read your book and I just kept on thinking, okay, I know it's written for men, but most of the time, most of what you said could have been easily just, you know, switch out a couple of uh, pronouns and, and, a, and a guy's reading it and thinking, yeah, same thing. I mean, mowing the lawn seems mundane, uh, taking out the trash, ordering things, and I think men should be doing stuff in the home too. Um, it seems mundane until you start to realize, well, you know, God, you know, God placed Adam in the garden to care and cultivate and do all of those regular, regularized mundane. That's that's image bearing. That's image bearing one on one, and at the same time, it's cosmic and 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 um, and of ulti- and, and of significance that is far beyond what our kind of narratives of, well, it's just kind of suburban living or it's just kind of you know repressed um, nuclear family living. It's like, no, that's that's image bearing. Uh, there's there's nothing tiny or small about it. It's 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 romantic and grand. Uh, you know the way Chesterton talks about the family. Um, the the guys have been waiting patiently. Uh, Andrew and Alistair. Yeah, I'm glad you noticed, Derek. You're just having your own yeah, well, chat you know, there, and we're I, just sort of I sitting was, here. Quietly I'm, pl- I'm planning so. to shut up the rest Sorry. of the time, mostly. So, um, Alistair, Andrew, I wanted to know if you guys had any questions for Hannah or or any kind of thoughts related to the to, to the to the topic of the book or on the image or whatever so i'm gonna hand it over to uh to you guys uh yeah i'd love i'd love to i'd love to ask her because i i thought the concept was great and i actually you kind of had had me very early on really i i intuitively think resonated with the idea that yes gendered roles have come first in the identity quest and humanity has come second and i think what your your whole project in making the leading edge the humanity and then it being followed up by uh, sort of gendered more specific roles was, was really helpful and, and immediately made sense as soon as I read it. I think it probably even before I read, read the book itself, just seeing the blurb, I thought that feels true. I would lo- I'd love to ask how you would account for th- that inversion as you see it. So you're obviously experienced. I think probably it's something that women 
experience more obviously than men. Um, certainly in the conservative, more conservative kind of churches that you're from and that I'm from. Um, but how would you account for the fact, if you would, I imagine you probably have some theories or some stories as to why that's true, that the femininity thing has been the leading edge and the humanity has been following, rather than, as you're, I think, rightly saying, humanity leading edge, being the leading edge and femininity following. How do you explain, if you do, why that's been true? Uh, and what do you think's behind, yeah, what do you think's behind that? What is there anything else that needs to be unpicked in that process? That, that, yeah, that's probably the question. Well, I, I obviously have my theories. Um, I think, of course, this conversation of gender roles and gender leading has been dominant since, you know, the rise of second wave feminism in the 60s. And to get under that, though, you have to understand what propelled second wave feminism. And, and some of it was, you know, godless, whatever, you know, all the, all the, um, things that you hear conservatives saying about second wave feminism, but there was also a very valid question in place. And what people don't understand is that the traditional roles of the 1950s were heavily influenced by, um, a Darwinian understanding of human biology. And so when we want to track back to the 1950s and say, okay, here's what men and women do. These are the traditional roles. We miss that that wasn't a fully formed expression of, of Christian humanity. And so what I see has happened in the subsequent decades is that the conservative church has responded to feminism, but has continued the trajectory of this false understanding of what gender is even for. And I, and I don't think it's intentional. I don't think it is, um, you know, people knowingly embracing or even understanding that the, the trajectory was off from the start. And so instead of reacting to feminism as we have done and just doubling down on gender roles, I think we need to go back beyond the 1950s and say, wait, was that paradigm even accurate in the first place? And I'd like to tell people I'm a conservative, but I'm a pre-1950s kind of conservative <laughs> um, with this fully formed view of personhood, this fully formed view of womanhood and manhood. Um, and I think we got tripped up as Christians because we assumed that the paradigm that, that was in place was an accurate one. And, and I don't think that for the most part in the secular world, I don't think it was an accurate paradigm. So if you, where would, if, if you had to pick just to take the, the whole decade or century thing, even, because I think I completely think that's true. You, you interact with people in um, majority world cultures now where in theory, in the theory of the, you know, kind of the white story of development and evolution and so on, you would expect there to be a much more, uh, you know, much more man has a much higher percentage of the responsibility in the family. You actually think relative to the 1950s in America or Britain, um, the roles are shared much more equally in many majority world cultures than they are in they were in 1950s Britain or America. And so, I, what you're saying makes a huge amount of sense. But I, if you were you, if you were going to peg it on a century or a decade and say, actually, I'm not 1950s, I'm this instead. Do you have a a particular period you look back to like that and say, I think there was a very strong recognition of it here? Obviously, other than biblical passages or whatever do you have that or do you not tend to do you tend to make it the point negatively rather positively oh i don't tend to launch myself into a period or a decade what i what i what i have been formed by is um 
Christian biography and um, this vision of manhood and womanhood that is fully formed taking the word to the world. Um, my heroes growing up were women like Mary Slusser, Amy Carmichael, um, even, and this may sound a little romantic, but the pioneer couple who is going to establish their land, either, you know, I guess for Brits, it's what in Australia, New Zealand, and us, it's in the West, who work together to exercise dominion over a place together. And I I know that sounds um, maybe a little romanticized, but those were the um, those were the women women that were placed in front of me as a child growing up, and who I came to see as this fully formed humanity that is invested in the kingdom and yet still very fully woman, um, but committing themselves body and soul to the work of Christ. I found I found your emphasis upon getting the historical background right, very helpful. Um, I think it's one of the things that's missing in a lot of our contemporary debates, just a sense of where our history is coming from. Um, so I've discussed with my girlfriend, who's an American historian, and talking about the 1950s, they were a deeply anomalous decade. They aren't the <laughs> sort of natural background that we often think they are. And in the same way, many of the debates since then have been shaped very, by a very particular historical context, by forces within that capitalism, the shape of our economy, the shape of our lifestyles, suburbs, all these sorts of things. And often I don't think we take that into account. So I really appreciated that element. Wanting to take things in a slightly different direction, um, your book has the theme of identity at its core and the quest for identity. And I was recalling a particular anecdote my dad told me a while back. He once stopped for, to ask for directions to some place he was going, and he received the amusing response, if I wanted to get there, I wouldn't be starting from here. And, of course, to get wherever we want to get go, wherever we want to go, we have no choice but to start from where we actually are. And reading your book, I was reminded of this anecdote. Um, because in many respects, your book speaks to the contemporary quest for individual authenticity and identity. But in various ways throughout the book, um, I found that you were turning this particular quest on its head and unsettling its assumptions about what identity will look like and what true authenticity will be like when we find it. And after reading the book, one of the questions that I was left with, and I think it's always a good sign when you're left with good questions once you've finished reading a book, was... Where would be a better starting point for the human quest? You mean then where we are starting it now in the sense of this individualism? And yes, in terms of searching for individual identity um, as detached persons, what would be a better way of framing this human quest? Well, I am I'm very much aware of the weakness of this individualism and I think one of the things that I, I did try to turn this without people knowing so thank you for telling everyone now <laughs> um, was to say there is identity is formed in community um, it, it seems through my own study and through the process of writing is that we do not exist as individual discrete units. And so as we are trying to quote unquote find ourselves, we're really discovering more about where God has placed us, who God has attached us to. Um, and, and that's, you know, 
in all reality that's one of the beautiful things about the nature of the trinity is that there is this dependent relationship that forms the identity of the god we worship and so as people made in his image we have uh, we should expect the same thing we should expect to find our sense of self formed and shaped in the community of the other image bearers that uh, we engage in in our life Part of the reason for taking a more individualistic approach at the front end was because people don't even have a context, generally speaking, for that kind of thought. Um, as you said, the conversation is very much driven by this find yourself, discover yourself, and I, almost, I felt like I had to build the category of relational living in order to help people move beyond that. It wasn't even a category that's in people's minds quite frankly. Yeah, so I found it very helpful on that front. Maybe it's, I found at the end of the book, at the beginning I thought you were presenting a position that was talking very much about this humanity that is all a part that we share as individuals. But towards the end of the book, there was more a sense that this is something that we're all a part of, um, which is a different way of seeing things. And I found that very helpful. One of the things that did strike me that I'd like to hear some more of your thoughts on, is if we are thinking in terms of this broader sense of um, community and imaging God in community, there's a sense that we need to be those who are helping to form other people's image bearing and helping to support them within that act. Um, and so there's a lot of structural and communal issues that come in here about how we facilitate other people in living out their um, image bearing. And one of the points that you did raise at, certain, at one stage was the need to make room for feminine voices that can speak and write about doctrine and theology without having to adopt a masculine style to be heard. That's a quote from page 105. And I was wondering if you wanted to give some more thoughts on that. Yes, I think because the conservative church, and I'm speaking in context, you know, generally the conservative church, because the conversation has been dominated by gender, um, we tend to um, re relegate certain spheres to specific genders, and especially in context of, of churches that would see teaching or eldership as a masculine um, dominion, all the things that happen there, theologically speaking, tend to adopt a masculine voice. And when women see that, they associate theology then with masculinity because we only see men in front of us speaking in a masculine way. It's only embodied. Theology is primarily embodied in masculine form. And so my heart is to say to women and to the church, but if theology means learning about the God whose image we bear, then this is something for everyone. And so I think especially we need to find a place where theology can be modeled in a feminine embodiment that does not, you know, we don't have to necessarily change paradigms of what we believe the scripture is teaching, but just the example of a woman speaking theologically allows other women to say, oh, that is for me. That is something that I should be pursuing and thinking about and understanding as well. 
you know, I, I got I to follow, I was going to follow this up. I was just talking to a student about this. Uh, she's, uh, she's actually a listener uh, and, a, and a reader, at least of Alistair. Uh, but she, we were just talking about the, the, the issue of, of doing theological studies as a woman, whether or not you need to immediately get, you know, pigeonholed into the gender conversation, or can you kind of get to the, get to the core of it or, or, you know, even if even putting it that way is appropriate, and and even just the way conversations unfold um, that are different between you know uh, guys who will kind of uh, men who tend to kind of uh, she, she was pointing out something that Alistair pointed out, but basically the the rules of of play in conversation that go up usually between a conversation between men and and then the dynamic that changes when a woman enters it. Um, I really want to. I'm really curious as to what you mean then by um, kind of being embodied by um, theology done in embodied in a, in, a, in a feminine way. I, I'm curious. I want to hear more. Not not uh, not critiquing, but just really would love to hear you develop that um, because I, I yeah I want to see it. Uh, I mean, if it's more of what you put did in the book, excellent. Bravo, uh, but I'm, I'm curious, like, the specific features of what you're speaking of. Well, here's an example. I, I have had people ask me, oh, this is a great book. Why did you write it for women? <laughs> Why didn't you write it just for a general audience? And to me, that belies um, a false understanding of who theology is for. And so even crafting this book with illustrations that are targeted to women with perhaps a style that is slightly more feminine it's it it's it may not be feminine but it, it is not um direct and didactic and academic it, it is what my audience would be able to would be used to engaging in the literature that they read even the way i crafted the book was to say here is a feminine voice in a feminine context doing theology that a man would appreciate and it doesn't have to be gender neutral it can be written to women in this way specifically in this context and be just as valid i told somebody and this may be revealing a bit too much about myself i wanted to write the book for women that men had wished had been written for them because I feel like, especially in our literature, there is this disconnect between the types of books that are being written for men and women and for general audiences. So um, that's maybe an illustration of how I would like to see deeper, to see theology presented in a way that still retains its validity, even though it's written in a feminine context or in a feminine form. Well, you hit the nail on the head because, again, I, I've said it again, this is this is not just a... This is not just a book for uh, you know any 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 female listeners to to be reading. I think I think this is men, uh, women, maybe not children because they might not know how to read yet. But in any case, it it cuts across it cuts across um, and and even I, I, especially because you use more um, kind of feminine examples or things like that. It it helps men who don't have that. Uh, maybe aren't thinking in that way or have trouble empathizing in such a way that they can put themselves imaginatively in those shoes naturally um, it helps them do so and and that's very important for uh, for for them so yeah Andrew you had a thing you were gonna say though um, earlier yeah it was it was it, it would kind of take us 
rewind us a moment. Um, I think it was probably just to, to talk about the when when it was this, a similar line actually to the embodiment question. Where I was just going to ask. It seemed to be hinted at in something what Hannah was saying that it wasn't simply having theology done by women would be helpful, but having theology done by women without feeling like they needed to do theology like men do it right. would be helpful. And I was just curious as to how you might identify some of the it's something Alice has written a bit about. I think recently on the from the more masculine side, um, the sort of you know agonistic modes of discourse and things like that, which Alice has just done some, you know, been writing about a little bit recently in various contexts. I, I wondered if you were going to frame a way of, what does it mean for a woman to do theology in a feminine way without it being a, without feeling like I would have put a, without stereotyping and also without constraining people into a masculine form of discourse or whatever. Right. And, and how I, would you, if you were going to describe that, how would you, how would you pad that out? Yeah. And I do want to make the um, acknowledgement that there is a difference between theology academic theology proper that is going to have more of an academic flavor um, and what I would consider doing lay theology with what is what I'm doing in the book here so we, we do have that divide as well to to um, parse through but for me it means that we present theology in a way that women can take ownership of it that they see other women doing theology in their full womanhood that they are speaking and teaching quote unquote like a girl <laughs> and not feel the need to present themselves in the way that they have seen elders and teachers who are men the, the maybe it's stylistically i don't know that it changes the content but um we need to see women who are engaged in these conversations, who are blogging about these issues, who are even speaking about these issues in their full femininity. Um, and, and I don't see that happening as often. It tends to be when you see a woman writing from with her womanhood in mind, she's addressing only womanhood. Um, she's only addressing the gender question. And when you see maybe women writing more broadly, it, it's easy to adopt the style that is happening more broadly, which by default tends to be more masculine just because more men are contributing to that conversation. So I, I don't know that I can pinpoint one person and say this is the person, you know, or, or one expression, but I want it. I see I have this vision for a woman like me who's a stay at home mom who has an interest and a drive toward these discussions feeling that there is in no way a disconnect between those two things and that I can write and think and speak out of my full womanhood on these topics that address my full humanity. On that question, I wonder whether you have any thoughts on contexts where these conversations can be enjoyed, because often I think a number of the things that you're um, dealing with here demand structural and um, they demand changes within the way that we structure our teaching within churches and the way that we have women's ministries, all these sorts of things. And I was wondering if you had some thoughts on changes that could facilitate and encourage these sorts of contexts for um, women getting involved in theology. I do. And right now I am very um, sensitive to the questions of how you would go about applying this in a local church because of questions of male eldership, male teaching roles. I mean, 
for the women that I primarily write to, those are and, and the men, that is a huge question. How do we apply this in context of other firmly held beliefs? And for me, I, I would like to see us approach men and women's discipleship less centered on the gender. Okay, we are discipling women in their womanhood and more take a model of perhaps single sex ed where the topics and the conversations do not change but the way we go about doing it does change depending on our gendered context and so if I were to send my daughter to um, an all-girls school she would learn history and um, you know mathematics and, and the only dynamic and dimension that would change would be her ability to work with her peers and perhaps to build her own confidence within a single-sex educational platform so right now I'm doing a lot of thinking about this structurally how do you take these concepts and apply them in a church especially a church that's trying to maintain certain distinctives and I think the way forward is to stop thinking of discipleship in terms of womanhood and manhood and to think in terms of the broader fully formed personhood and fully formed theological um, education that we need to give both men and women. Uh, fellas, any any other follow-ups there? I think, that's, I think that's excellent. I love that final speech. I, I want to write it down. I thought it was excellent. <laughs> well, I completely agree as well. Well, you know, that's possible because you can download this and then transcribe and and have fun with that. It could just be just a thing you do regularly is listen and transcribe and memorize our conversations. Um, well, I I think we are coming to the end of our recording time and it passed really too quickly in my opinion. Um, but there we are. If you were as excited and interested in this conversation as we were, uh, again, we're going to really highly commend that you go pick up Made for More, um, an, an invitation, I, I always forget the subtitle, uh, An Invitation to Live in God's, Hannah, fill that in for me. I'm, I'm blanking on it. Made for More, An Invitation to Live in God's Image. That's what I thought. And you can find it everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, and you can also stop by my blog, sometimesalight.com, and occasionally I actually blog there, but there's more information um, about the book and about other topics and, that I've written. And her Twitter account is also, it's at sometimesalight, right? Yes. So follow her. She tweets and says good, smart, wonderful things. So uh, again, we're just going to invite you to, to follow up with that. It's a very important conversation. Uh, Hannah, we hope to have you on in the future again. Thank you for joining us. You've been a, a wonderful guest. Um, quite makes up for losing the other Anderson today. And uh, yeah, with that, we're going to wrap things up. Uh, again, if you've, if you've enjoyed this, uh, feel free to share. Uh, go to iTunes, give us a rate, a review, subscribe to the podcast. All of those links will be uh, in the show notes at mereorthodoxy.com. Uh, so once again, uh, may the grace of Christ be with you. Amen.